Spirit and in Your Word, again, do Your surgery on us. Cut away from us our idols, our false loves, that we may be wholeheartedly Yours. Oh Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so would you look with me now at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. This is God's Word. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell that man what will be after him under the sun? This is God's Word. Well, as we begin to get into this text today, I want to go way back for some of you. For some of you, you have no idea what this is. You have to look it up in a history book. I want you to think about one of the first ever family sitcoms. It was called The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. I just want to see, just so I know, how many people, raise your hand, have you even heard of The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet? It's like the first sitcom. All right, good. These people started. Well, one of its cast members became very famous in his time. It was Ricky Nelson. Do we have that up here? Remember what Ricky Nelson looks like? Ricky Nelson, this guy, there we go, yeah. He was a teen idol in the 50s. You probably thought that was some sort of new thing. Nope. People screamed and lost their minds over him, like the Beatles thing. He was a clean-cut heartthrob. He was such a big deal. He got to star with John Wayne and Dean Martin, 1959. Anybody know the movie? Rio Bravo. Great old western. My grandpa made me watch all those with him. Love that time. Great movie. He had a rock music career in the 1960s. He was it. He was what everybody expected. He was a star. But he grew up, changed his name legally to Rick Nelson. He had a very successful music career. One day, 1971, he was a special guest at this concert at Madison Square Garden in New York City. He came out on stage looking very 1971, not like that at all. He had on, if I remember the description I read, long hair, green velvet shirt, purple bell-bottom pants, boots, and he had an electric guitar. And he started playing all of his new stuff. And he was booed off the stage. Being a good artist... He used that pain and that disappointment and he wrote a song about it the next year. And it rocketed to the top of the charts. You probably know the chorus. It was called Garden Party, Madison Square Garden. In the middle of that chorus, it says this. You probably know it. It says, you know, it's all right now. I've learned my lesson well. You see, you can't please everyone, so you've got to please yourself. How many of you can sing that right now? You know it. 
right? Come on, there we go. I feel like I should be like, you know, Paul Harvey. And now you know the rest of the story. Anyway, so who knew, right? But isn't that a great sentiment for right where we are in Ecclesiastes and where we are as a culture? 1972, 2015, it's the same thing, right? Life is difficult. Finding real joy never works. The only answer is to look out for yourself. Just make yourself happy. That's right where we are in Ecclesiastes. If you remember the context from last week, we had a a gritty reminder of the life of an unbeliever under the sun, what that really looks like. They have no joy because God himself denies them joy. So they will seek him is why he does that. This pastor philosopher said that life under the sun It's actually better to have been stillborn or miscarried than to live without joy or happiness. Pretty dark text, pretty pretty gritty. That was last week. Now this week, he looks at how hard we struggle. Even those of us who know better, how hard we struggle to fulfill our desires. How hard we work to find joy and satisfaction here instead of turning to God for fulfillment, even though He is the only one who can give us joy. So what we're going to see here is that basically since our wandering hearts keep us unsatisfied and frustrated, we're trapped unless someone with a better life guides us. That kind of helps us get to our theme today. I want to give you a sentence you can remember and use at your uh, private or family devotions throughout the week or use it at lunch to remember what the sermon was about. Here's what we're going to talk about today. The journey to make ourselves happy is really a treadmill of frustration. See, what he's going to say is life under the sun is a treadmill. Even when we see the treadmill and recognize we're on a treadmill, we can't get off the treadmill without help. And so let's jump in and see this. So we're on the treadmill. All right, so last week ended at verse 6, telling us that under the sun, death makes all of our life meaningless. Every one of us, because death is out there. If we live under the sun without reference to God, it doesn't matter what we do, it was just meaningless. And picking up on that theme, then here in verse 7, he says that really... All of our turmoil is actually, ultimately, for our own pleasure here in this life. You can't please everyone, so you might as well please yourself. And even though that's what we do, we're never satisfied. I mean, think about how hard you work. Think about how hard other people work just trying to be happy. All to no avail. See, what Ecclesiastes does here, what he's doing, he's anchoring the misery of life under the sun. Again, life under the sun is a viewpoint that says there is no God, or if there is a God, he's not really relevant to my life. I'm just going to live the way I live and not think about him, where most people are in our culture. That's life under the sun. And so what he does here says the misery of that life is really anchored in desire itself of wanting something different, of lacking, having desire. He says here in verse 7, you know, everything we do is for our mouth. It's clearly a reference to food or sustenance, but it's so much deeper than that. It's a reference to pleasure. It's a reference to enjoying life or, or trying to find joy. Everything you do is for those things. And verse 8 then goes on to show us that it doesn't matter how wise we are, 
doesn't matter how much money we have, we still all have these unfulfilled longings. Everyone under the sun is on an equal playing field, the text says, of meaninglessness and frustration seeking deeper satisfaction. And it doesn't work. Now this was written about roughly 3000 B.C. Very interesting, it was actually ahead of its time. By the time of Jesus, the, the first century B.C. Roman and Greek world had actually already established their, their philosophical schools, the way that they thought, you could say the water they swam in, whatever, just kind of the assumptions of their culture was that desire was the root of evil. Wanting was what made everybody unhappy. Most misery comes from desire is what they thought. That's the world Christ entered into in the Roman Empire. Thus, most people who don't know anything about history or philosophy, most of you have probably heard of the Stoics, right? Or Stoicism is the idea of just being completely emotionless, denying your desires to be happy. They were considered the like, special forces of their day. These people got it. They lived this way. The rest of us, we can't do that. It's too hard. But these Stoics, if we could be like them, that'd be great. Why am I telling you about something that happens you know, around the time of Christ? Because you take that baggage of desire is what is misery comes from, and so the, the denial of desires and emotions. You take that flavor of a culture, you add in Christianity that popped up in the next 50 years, and you put those things together, and you have the nursery that birthed Western culture, our culture. And we still live with those things. We still have this kind of idea in our hearts that it's desire itself that makes me unhappy. I mean, how many of you, just think about it for yourself and your own heart, how many of you find yourself having an internal guilt at wanting something more? How many of you have a suspicion of someone who wants too much, they seem too ambitious, you're like, be careful with that person. How many of you have the assumption that, uh uh-oh, things are going really well in my life, there must be something bad about to happen? Right? That's all from these underlying assumptions that go back 2,000 years. And they actually stole it from Scripture, which wrote it 1,000 years earlier. That desire, this wanting things, is actually the root of misery. Why are we like that? Because humanity was created with a desire for God, the Creator. But life under the sun, a, a system of thought that ignores that Creator... It can't offer a valid substitute. It can't offer something that fulfills the way the Creator would fulfill us. And so we're left with this insatiable feeling of longing. Something that we can't find under the sun, but we want it so bad, but we're never satisfied, and we're always looking, but never finding. You know, C.S. Lewis, the famous philosopher, the famous author, lots of us know about C.S. Lewis. I use him a lot. He said that this phenomenon from verse 7 is actually one of the things that helped him on his journey out of atheism into Christianity, which he did at about 40 years old. Through his writing, through his teaching, through his hobbies, he would encounter something. And he, he, he said, I can't quite describe what I'm, what I'm encountering. And when I try to describe it, it's so awesome, it, it's gone. And then he says this, he says, He says, you know, I kept experiencing an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy. And he goes on to say how this longing for joy, this thirst for joy that he could never find anywhere is one of the big things that drew him 
to Christianity because he found it there. See, under the sun, we are all thirsty for joy. And that thirst is only satisfied in the Creator. See, but in a world under the sun, in a world that tries to alienate us in our thoughts from our Creator, that says, no, He's not there, He's not relevant, you're on your own, live here, that thirst for joy, that desire for satisfaction we have, it puts us on the path of constantly seeking, always journeying, but never finding. I want you to think about cartoons. If you've ever seen a cartoon in your life, you have seen the image of a donkey or a mule with a stick tied to its back, right, sticking out in front of it, and hanging down on the string, what's on the stick, right? A carrot to get the donkey to move forward. That image, put that in your mind right now, that is what Scripture says life under the sun does to us with joy. It hangs the tantalizing joy right out in front of us and we go after it, but we can never find it. We never get it. And to make it even worse, it's not even that we're actually making progress as we look down and we realize we're on a treadmill going after this thing, not making any progress, exhausting ourselves. It's tantalizing us, keeping us moving, but we never find the satisfaction. Every time we move forward, it moves forward. Or as C.S. Lewis says, every time we think about it, it just dissolves and I can't find it and I'm always looking for it. See, we want our joy, don't we? And so we go after it, but life under the sun has it on a stick right there in front of us. This, this picture of life under the sun being us stuck on a treadmill. I want you to get that in your mind. Because that is why the metaphor of life as a journey is so powerful and so pervasive. Under the sun... Being unsatisfied, our hearts are always wandering, searching for joy. So we're always, in a sense, on a journey seeking this thing out. So the text itself says, look with me at verse 9. So verse 9 says, it says, <clears throat> Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The word for appetite there we could actually translate as the word for soul. Or even in our vernacular we could say heart. So it says our hearts are always wandering and it's a frustrating, empty, vain pursuit because it doesn't fulfill us. I want you to feel this. I want you to look with me together. Let's look at kids, uh, the translation of, of verse 9. Boys and girls, get out yours. Let's look at your verse 9. Here's what it says. It says it's better to see something real than to have a wandering heart. But since we are never satisfied, we live in frustration. Boys and girls, here's what that means. Do you want a picture of a toy or do you want the toy itself? Like on Christmas morning, you run downstairs and there's a catalog from Toys R Us. You're like, yay, right, look at all the pictures of toys. I'm so happy. Okay, right, this means yes, this means no, boys and girls. Is that what we want? No, we want the stuff, right? Where's the loot, right? Give me the things. Do you want to search for a toy in your dark room? Or do you want to play with a toy in the light, boys and girls? See, that's what this text is asking us. It's the same for us adults. Adults, our wandering desires come from discontentment. We're supposed to find the thing, but we settle for the pictures because all this world under the sun can offer us is the pictures, not the real deal. 
And so our wandering, unfulfilled desires are our major source of frustration under the sun. We live in frustration. Or we can let those frustrations drive us back to the Creator in whom we find satisfaction, in whom we find that. That's hinted at in verse 9 where it says, you know, the journey is not actually better than the destination. It's better to arrive at satisfaction than to always be seeking satisfaction. I mean, we've all heard that proverb that is used a lot. Well, you know, life's a journey, and the, and the journey, and you know, you learn on the journey. Sometimes the journey is better than getting there. And Scripture says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, that's wrong. The journey's fantastic, and the destination's even better. You want to get there. You want to find what you're searching for, because in the gospel, we arrive at joy and satisfaction. And once we get there, we want to stay there. Now, if you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, you're still looking at this thing, look at your heart right now. Just ask yourself, you know, aren't your desires always kind of on the move, but they're never really arriving anywhere? Oh, I'll go after this and it'll make me happy. And then you kind of get that and you jump, oh, maybe this make me happy. Maybe this. We're always going all over the place. It's what's called wanderlust. It's deep in the human heart. See, but the promise of the gospel, what's offered here in Ecclesiastes and the rest of Scripture is that in the gospel, your wandering heart can find a home, a place where it fits, where you have satisfaction, where you can be happy. It sounds so superficial when I say it that way, but that's really what we're after is just to be able to rest at home. Jesus Christ can give you satisfaction and fulfillment. He can give you a joy that will anchor you by reuniting you with your Creator in whom all of your desires can be fulfilled. That's the promise. And for those of you who are Christians, you're not immune to this. Don't think you are. We very often reach out for something to satisfy ourselves. You know, instead of spending more time with our Creator or instead of recognizing and abiding in Christ and delving even deeper into the beauties of the gospel. Very often, when we feel kind of a wandering heart, when we feel unfulfilled, very often we'll we'll buy something. Or we'll take a trip somewhere. Or we'll eat that extra helping. Or we'll find another activity to get involved in. Or we'll hop online. You know, before we do those things, perhaps it's best if we ask, Am I looking to get joy here instead of in my Heavenly Father? Am I wandering over here when actually the answer is right here? We're not immune to doing that. Dear flock, be aware of that. Because Christian or not, we can be stuck on the treadmill of frustration. Seeking satisfaction in life under the sun. See, but one of the first steps to freedom is recognizing and admitting, I'm on a treadmill, i got a problem. So let's look at seeing the treadmill then. Look with me at verse 10. Here's what it says. It says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So if you remember, or if you were here last week, or if you didn't, let me tell you, verse 2 told us that God doesn't let us find deep joy here under the sun. This pastor philosopher tells us, now, how does that work out practically? What does that look like? God won't let us find joy, so what does that look like? He says, well, life under the sun is a treadmill. 
That's how God won't let you find joy. He puts you on a treadmill. What verse 10 basically says is, look, you can't change the basic nature of reality. You can't change the character of life under the sun. You can't escape your limitations. You can't do anything to stop the frustrations of life. Why? Because everything has been named, categorized by the Creator God. Life under the sun is what it is. And we keep looking here for answers. And we keep getting the same results. It's a cycle. It's a loop. It's a treadmill of looking for joy, not finding it. So we look over here, not finding it. And we keep going and we keep going. And we're on this cyclical treadmill life, not being satisfied. You know, I used to uh, run on a treadmill down at the Y. Now I have an elliptical machine out in my shop. And the thing about being on a treadmill, if you've done it, or an exercise bike, or an elliptical, or whatever, is that it's so boring, and tedious, and repetitive. And you're like running, it's hard. You know, the human body is not meant to run, at least mine wasn't. I mean, every cell in my body when I'm running on a treadmill is like, stop, what are you doing? So you, what you do, you have to have a distraction to take your mind off what you're doing, right? So you've got to have the iPod, the iPad, a TV, a book, anything to keep your mind off, to forget that you're on a treadmill, right? And that is exactly what we do in life under the sun. Our toil, our searching for joy under the sun gets us on a treadmill. It's a treadmill of frustration going nowhere. And so on the treadmill, we live for distraction. We seek out distraction so we don't look at and remember we're on a treadmill. I mean, how much of your life right now is a distraction? Fundamentally, that's really all it is. just a distraction from life. You know, I do a significant amount of marriage counseling being a pastor. And after, you know, gosh, 18, 19 years, the repeated stressor that I see more than anything else is to marriage is debt, having a heavy debt load. And I don't mean like student loans. I mean like, ooh, it's shiny. I don't have the money. I'm buying it anyway, debt load. Because why? You're on a treadmill of frustration and so for all of us, it's not just women. I'm not going to go make the easy sexist application. It's for all of us nowadays. A great way to feel good and have a good pick-me-up is just to buy something that you don't really need with money you don't have, sometimes to impress people you don't know. But the debt just keeps growing and your frustration keeps growing and uh, I'm going to buy something else now. Or I'll, just, I'll find another distraction. And you know you do that. Or maybe it's just an inability of our hearts just to sit still and to invest in a real relationship with someone. I mean, we'd like to, but if we sit still and actually start talking and sharing our heart, we'll remember all the junk in our life that we keep ourselves distracted from, and that hurts and makes me uncomfortable. So I'm just going to stay busy. I'm sorry. No, I don't want to invest because my life is too difficult to think about. See, the frustration in life it's what we can't fight against. It's there. It's always bombarding us. And so we're always looking for joy in the midst of this frustration. And God offers a release, but that, we don't really want that. We think we can find it here under the sun. It gets us trapped on this treadmill, and we can never get off. That's why it says in verse 11, look with me at verse 11, on the treadmill it says, look, there's the more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? Literally, we could say, we could translate this as, the more occupations, the more frustrations. The more you do to distract yourself, the more busyness you add to your life, the more frustrations you get. It doesn't help. 
In other words, you're on a treadmill. You see you're on a treadmill. Let me distract myself some more. It doesn't help. See, this is deeper than complaining about life. I hope you see that. This is about our propensity to distract ourselves, to try to forget the deep issues of life under the sun and find satisfaction and happiness here with anything we can do. But we can't. He's not complaining. He's trying to get to our hearts and saying, look how you act without God. Are you happy? Are you satisfied? Dear flock, one place we need to take this is, you know, as we are looking to be a more evangelistic church, a real way to start, a great way to start actually, is first of all to meet more non-Christians, to be involved in more non-Christians, and let them see you living your life not pursuing distractions. Let them see that you have significant joy. Let them see that you have found a bit of peace in the midst of a treadmill life. You see, when we open up our homes and our families, our lives to non-Christians, when we spend time with non-Christians, they will notice something different about us, Lord willing. And that's when we can tell them about the hope and the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And can I just interject something here real quick? It's the you know, end of the summer is coming up real quick. Lots of stuff happens through the school year. And I'm going to say this very gently. I think Bible studies are a great idea. I, I, I love it when people get together to study the Scriptures. But can I just encourage you to look at your social calendar? And if all you're doing is going from one thing with Christians to another thing with Christians to another thing with Christians, and you're not interjecting yourself in the community around you with non-Christians you need to reevaluate your schedule. We're called in the Great Commission to go to them, not expect them to come to us. And so perhaps instead of going to yet another Christian-based activity, why don't you go take a class at night in a hobby you'd like? Why don't you go volunteer somewhere? Find something where non-Christians are. If you can't make a list of people in your life who don't know Christ... You need to be able to do that for us to be obedient disciples to our Lord. You see, most people, they notice the problems of life. They see the treadmill. They feel the treadmill, and they don't know how to get off the treadmill, so they just keep distracting themselves from the treadmill. But that's still not an advantage. We can't get off the treadmill. And so we need help, which is right where this text wraps up. How do we get freedom from the treadmill? Look with me at verse 12. It says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We need someone to tell us what's good, is what this verse says. It's a desperate need for us today especially on a week like this. If there's ever been a time where our culture has shown forth, we don't know what's good. It's a week like this where we have dead lions, deflated footballs, and dead babies, and they seem to be treated equally the same. That's frustrating, isn't it? It's very disappointing. But see, by talking openly about the disappointing nature of life, this pastor philosopher is hoping to stoke our desire back to God to say this world does not work this world under the sun is frustrating and vain and I need something else he says yes here's something else 
See, if we look at things without reference to God, if we live our lives as God is not there, living under the sun, we will never understand what is good. We will never have certainty about what happens after we die, this verse tells us. We will stay stuck on the treadmill of frustration, always searching for joy but never being satisfied. We need someone else to come and tell us the good, to tell us what comes after this life, because really a culture under the sun doesn't have any answers. Fundamentally, the best answer our culture could come up with is that sign that's so popular in everywhere now. I even have one in my office, right? Keep calm and carry on. That's all we got. Good luck. See, but one of the things that, that, that you know, when John Mark and I are thinking about how, how, how can we help the church, how can, how, how can we move forward evangelistically as the session's praying through these things, one of the things we really want to do is we want to show you how relevant the gospel is to your unbelieving neighbors how much it really speaks to where they are in life. So I want to I share some things with you real quick. There's an author out there. Her name is Tima Kadron. Uh, she is, the best way to describe her, is, she would not describe herself this way, I want to be fair, but really the best way to describe her, she's a teacher of pop Buddhism. She's been on Oprah. She's, I think she's even been on Dr. Phil. She's been on news. She's got like tons of books on the bestseller lists. She is a very popular teacher for those in our culture looking for answers. And in one of her books, she basically restates this Ecclesiastes passage. In fact, I'm not convinced she wasn't co-opting this passage. But instead of ending it with the hope of the gospel, as this passage will, she actually brings it back around to us and kind of, well, just keep pressing on. Because on a treadmill, that's all you got, right? And she's coming from an under-the-sun viewpoint. So here is what one of the best, most respected spiritual teachers under the sun has to say. It's a long quote, so I put it on a couple slides for you. Let's go through this together. Here's what she says. She says, Wandering in the world of desire involves looking for alternatives, seeking something to comfort us, food, drink, people. The word desire encompasses that addiction quality, the way we grab for something because we want to find a way to make things okay. That quality comes from never having grown up. We still want to go home and be able to open the refrigerator and find it full of our favorite goodies. When the going gets tough, we want to yell, Mom! But what we're doing as we progress along the path is leaving home and becoming homeless. Not wandering in the world of desire is about relating directly with how things are. Loneliness is not a problem. Loneliness is nothing to be solved. The same is true for any other experience we might have. See, fundamentally, her answer is to be on the journey all the time. Never arrive, stay on the treadmill, keep distracting yourself, recognize that this is a distraction, put that distraction down, but pick up this one instead. Don't just look at your problems, embrace your problems. Say, yes, I'm on a treadmill and I'm just going to walk the mess out of this treadmill. Let's do this. Basically what she says. Now, I want to be fair here. If you Google her name, you are going to find this quote in millions of places on the Internet. I did this week just to see how it's used. Most of them are blogs of people dealing with death in the family or sense of bereavement. This philosophy has given millions of people hope in the midst of difficulty and pain in their life. Because people are on a treadmill and they're hungry and they're thirsty and they're searching. And what she gives them is basically just keep on keeping on. Admit it stinks and just keep pressing on. 
That's not an answer to the questions posed in verse 12, is it? The questions of verse 12 is what? Who knows what's good for humanity? Who can tell humankind what comes after we're done? Not her. The people eat this stuff up because they're so desperate. Can we offer a better answer? Do we offer a better answer? See, the Bible claims that God knows these answers. Verse 12 says, who knows? The rest of Scripture says God does. He can tell us, especially since He lived as one of us under the sun. This powerful God who withheld joy in verse 2, who won't let us change our lot in life in verse 10, He knows what we need and what comes next. Into the frustrating, toilsome treadmill of life, the Gospel comes promising that Jesus can catapult us beyond this life. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see the amazing fact that God climbed onto the treadmill with us in order to free us from it. He didn't just stand back aloof and say, do better, get off, you can do this. Now watch. He got on there with us, walked with us and said, here, I got this. Isn't that a great picture? He lived on the treadmill for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Then He died for our sins and He was raised back to new life. And so He lives now. Instead of this frustrating, shadowy life from verse 12 that's here today and gone tomorrow, we have something else. We are saved by Christ's substantial and unending life instead of dealing with this shadowy life that verse 12 asks about. See, those of us who've been around church world for a while, we tend to emphasize the death of Christ a lot, right? We're into that. we got songs that sing about the blood, and we're always talking about sin, and Christ on the cross forgave our sins, and those are all extremely important truths. But they're only half the story. Kind of going back to our thing at the very beginning, like Paul Harvey, we need to remember the rest of the story, that we are saved by Christ's death, and we are saved by Christ's life. I want you to look with me at uh, Romans chapter 5. A great promise we often forget about says this, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, yeah, we got that, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. See, verse 12 asks, what's good for us in our shadowy, vaporous life? And Scripture answers what is good for you is to be united to the indestructible, everlasting life of Jesus Christ, which is offered to you for free in the Gospel. It's also shown in this table we're about to partake of. We have power to live today in this sacrament because Jesus Christ lives now giving us power through this sacrament. See, having experienced and then defeated death Jesus Christ can also answer the other question in verse 12. He can tell us what comes after because He's been there. Namely, what does He say? He says, I will give you peace and I will give you joy as part of my family. I will make you my brothers and my sisters. My dad can become your dad too. He will adopt you and he will satisfy you. So no more verse 7, all the toil of your life to satisfy your mouth, but it doesn't work. You will be satisfied. Instead of joy as a carrot on a stick out in front of you, Jesus Christ offers a banquet of satisfaction where you can feast as long as you want. Don't you want that? 
then repent of looking to your efforts and believe the gospel. It's just that simple. I don't care if you've been going to church for years or if you just stumbled in here for the first time for some reason. Man, I want you to just cast off everything you've called religion, everything you think you have to do to be right with God, and you simply place your trust in Jesus Christ as the one who's done it for you. He'll take care of the rest. It's that simple. Oh, if you're looking for satisfaction, it's right here. Take it. It's yours. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you've helped us to see the disappointing, frustrating treadmill of life and that you have not left us on the treadmill. You did not tell us to get off the treadmill. You did not tell us to do better. You got on there with us and picked us off of it by your grace. So, Lord, we pray that those of us who have been united to you by faith in Jesus Christ, would you help us to continue to find our satisfaction and our joy in you alone. Father, we pray that you would do your promised work that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our life, that you would draw all people to him even now. Lord, do your work of salvation. Build your kingdom even here, even today. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.